Welcome to the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. I'm your host, Janine Bancroft. On today's show from Edmonds, Washington, Aaron Cadam Samuels. Aaron Cadam Samuels is a writer, an activist, a music teacher, and composer embracing many musical genres. He's founder of Vox Vegana, an international vegan music collaborative project, and Vistopia Anonymous, a safe online haven for vegans of all stripes. Thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us today, Aaron. It is so much my pleasure and honor to be here, Janine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm always interested to know how uh, people find the vegan path. How did that happen for you? So I, I became vegetarian uh, actually before I even left high school um, for the same reason that a lot of, that a lot of people go vegetarian, um, thinking that it was, you know, me doing right by the animals. And, uh, and I was vegetarian probably, well, I mean, ever since then, up until uh, this year. Uh, and um, uh where when I became vegan um but I actually thought that I was vegan uh three years ago um (laughs) one of the reasons that I that I made the transition was because I was on a dating site called veggieconnection.com and uh you know there there were like these various you know echelons of uh you know plant-based eaters including semi-vegetarian all the way at the bottom right up all, all the way to the top was like a fruitarian or something like that um and there was a woman on there that i was interested in who was a raw vegan and i was like okay i suppose maybe i should you know finally make this transition and with a little assistance from some information given to me by my brother who is not even a vegan um i decided to make that change um, but I was still doing honey up until, uh, you know, like maybe February or March of this year. Um, so mostly <laughs> vegan is not even a term I like to use, but that's what I was for the past three years and then fully vegan this year. Interesting. So had you done the whole clothing shift and everything? Uh, the clothing shift. Yeah. Uh, for, for the most part, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, the, the level of awareness that I have now, uh, this year, 2020, um, compared to even just last year is profoundly different. Um, you know, I may have actually purchased something that was leather in the past three years, but, uh, but yeah, no more. I think we all do that, right. When we're first vegan and, and we just don't realize, you don't even realize how all pervasive the animal ingredients list is and, you know, reading labels and all that. So it's a progression and, and we got to forgive ourselves for for those mistakes along the way. Um, but, but now you're devoted to making sure every purchase is fully vegan no cruelty, no animal testing, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, almost to the point of hypervigilance, which I, you know, I think is sort of prudent, you know, considering the circumstances we're in as a, as a world. But um, somebody posted on Facebook, this app called cruelty cutter, uh, which is really cool. It's this app you can buy that you can actually, you know, scan the barcode of a product that you're going to buy to find out if it's cruelty free or not, which is really cool. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm very careful these days. Right on. 
And so I'm curious about the information that your non-vegetarian brother gave you that, that had an impact. You know, it was, um, it was just a suggestion, actually. We, did, we didn't get deep into the conversation. Um, he just happened to say that the, the dairy industry is arguably worse than the meat industry. And just, just the suggestion of that made me go, oh, yeah. You know, and I obviously I've since done uh, a significant amount of research on that. And uh, it's true. It's it's um, it's much worse. Um, I mean, they're they're both horrible atrocities. But uh, but yeah, you know, I don't I don't need to tell you um, the dairy industry is scary. Dairy is scary. Dairy is scary. Yeah. And then what was it about? Um, so this person that you met on the on online, then yeah. in, inspired you to was that when you gave up on honey? No, she was uh, she, you know, technically speaking, she considered herself a raw vegan, and she was most definitely raw. And for the most part, vegan, but honey was a big part of her diet, like she mm. ate a lot of honey. And so I did too. And you know, I didn't, I didn't really consider it because, you know, I guess, you know, truth be told, the, the main reason I was being vegan at that point uh, was, was to uh, impress her and to be on the same page as her. Um, and so uh, being on the same page as her, I didn't really even consider, you know, what, what we put bees through. I just kind of um, just went along with what she was doing. It's always interesting the different people that we meet along the journey, and and that's just part of life, isn't it? And um, yeah, truly, yeah, that's part of the the uh, the Vistopia situation. That's where we met, and I really want to yeah. talk a lot about your music. But before we do that, maybe while we're on the subject of um, vegan vegans and the challenges that we face just psychologically in dealing with our family and friends and stuff, what what drew you to create Vistopia Anonymous? You know, earlier this year, as I mentioned, uh, I made the I made the final transition, and uh, it was happened that happened like almost simultaneously uh, to the whole uh, lockdown situation. You know that that gave a lot of us an opportunity to do a lot of thinking, <laughs> which you know has its upsides and downsides. In that time, uh, I started doing a lot of research. I started learning more and more about the the horrors of animal agribusiness, and I started to be profoundly affected by it emotionally. And I don't remember exactly if I was looking for it or what, but somebody somebody on Facebook again made the suggestion that I might benefit from this idea of dystopia, a term that was coined by Claire Mann, who authored a book by the same title. The more I started reading up on it, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going through. This is my experience. And then shortly thereafter, I discovered this Vistopia support group, which is another amazing Facebook community where people post talking about their experiences with Vistopia and people support each other. Uh, there's, there's so much love and support it within that community. So I became a regular participant there. And then I don't even remember exactly why, but I thought, you know, maybe some of these people would like to get together on a Zoom conference call 
maybe that would be a way that they could feel even more supported, more connected to other people going through the same thing. And so that's when I put together Vistopia Anonymous. And that's been going on ever since, what, like three or four months now? Something like that. Cool. It's a great yeah. group. And how for people who maybe don't understand what Vistopia is, how would you describe it? It's this uh, emotional shift that takes place uh, for an individual once they become fully aware of the Holocaust that's happening to animals on this planet. And uh, it manifests in a, a myriad of ways, including sadness and anger and anxiety and alienation. And it's different for uh, you know different people. There's various levels um, and various ways that it manifests, um, but I've probably gone through just about all of those to varying degrees throughout this entire year. And it's just, it's really nice to have other people to talk to who get that. Um, so it's been really good for me too, to have Dystopia Anonymous. So is Vox Vigana a response to the dystopia or did that start prior to, you know, when did that, when did that uh, come to be? Yeah, so Vox Vigana, I actually, that actually got started right before the lockdown. I have a very fond memory of, of meeting with three people that I'd never met before. And they were right here in my space at Unit B in Edmonds, Washington. And um, there were four of us and managed to uh, have one of each like choral section. We had a soprano, an alto, a tenor, and a bass for the song, the, the uh, inaugural song for Vox Vigana. It was called The Future is Vegan. That was actually a response to having been in a, a wonderful choir called Finney Ridge Community Chorus. Um, great group of people. There were like 90 singers, huge group. Pretty much every choir does uh, a holiday, you know, performance. And we did one, two, I think we did three separate performances. Uh, including one called Figgy Pudding, which is really cool, where all, all these acapella choirs go downtown Seattle in the business district and all the streets get closed down. And uh, there uh, are just these little uh, stations of acapella choirs set up all over and people walk around and listen to everybody else sing these acapella songs. And, um, and they raise money for the elderly and the hungry uh, with the... Uh, uh, Pike Place Market. I'd never even been to Figgy Pudding and suddenly I was there performing in it, which was so cool. Also, they would uh, take a portion of their money and to um, help with the schools, I believe, in Haiti. So they were doing, you know, this philanthropic work as well, which was really cool. But then there would be these like you know, parties and breakfasts and stuff that I'm, that I was just like, I don't think I'm going to go because I just, it's going to bum me out because there's going to be all this consumption of what we take from the animals. And I don't want to be there for that. When that season ended, I was like, hey, what if I start my own choir and it's vegan and then I never have to worry about that again. In fact, we could be not only all vegan, but we could like sing about vegan stuff and maybe even like raise money for sanctuaries 
And so that's when I started, that's when I put together Vox Vigana. And the original intention was for it to be a choral group. It has since diversified uh, almost more out of necessity than anything else, because like you can't get a bunch of people together. There was a member that joined pretty early after I started the Facebook page who lives in Bhopal, India. But then I noticed she like canceled her membership, sent her a message. I was like, hey, uh, what's up? Don't you want to be in my group? <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, I do. But I noticed you, you're in Seattle. So I, I probably can't, you know, that, that commute's going to be a little rough. And I was like, yeah, I, I get that, but it, maybe we can still work together. Um, and we did. Uh, we've worked together a couple of times, uh, several times actually, various projects. Uh, the first one, she she wrote a bunch of lyrics and she posted it on the Vox Vigana page. And I was like, those are actually really good. Do you mind if I try to write some music for it? And I did. And I wrote two vocal lines, you know, a, a, like a, a harmony part, like a duet. And she ended up singing one of the parts to it. Um, and that song is called The Cost of Cruelty. And you can find that on the, on the Vox Vigana page as well. Are you mostly a, a composer of music then rather than lyrics, Sarah? I kind of do it all. I would say probably composing and songwriting are, are the, uh, the, the parts of the, the music pursuit that I feel closest to my heart. But uh, yeah, I love writing lyrics. I love writing music. I love teaching music. I love performing music. I love recording music. I, I do everything music, essentially. It, and you're amazingly talented, I, I feel. I, I just was astounded when I found uh, some of your recordings um, from different Lions and Samuels and um, yeah. the singing for the seniors that you've been uh, doing. I know seniors love, love that, that music. They're a great audience, aren't they? Oh, man, uh, the, the best, the absolute best audience that I've ever played for. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of research now about music and how it impacts seniors. And I remember my my dad, he developed dementia in his older years, and he was in a care facility, brought musicians in. And that was the one thing, you know, he couldn't tell me what he'd had for breakfast that day, but he would go to these groups and sing songs from his childhood that some song I mean and I heard him sing all through my life him and my mom used to sing all these songs I grew up during the war time so music was a mm -hmm. huge big deal right it got them through all of that but and he was singing these songs I'm like dad I have never heard that song before in my life <laughs> so it's amazing like it occupies a whole different part of the brain I yeah it does seem to and not only that though it seems to um ignite other parts of the brain when it's engaged there's a I don't remember if I shared it with you or not, but there's this great documentary called Alive Inside. I've watched it like two or three times now and I'm like weeping through the whole thing every time because right out of the gate, they show um, these uh, elderly people struggling to uh, retain, you know, their lives, their identities, because it's just all slipping away from them uh, for various reasons, including the fact that they're being, you know, sequestered from the rest of society but uh they there's just like there's got to be four or five in the movie um uh you know documents of these people being introduced to the music from their childhood 
with headphones and those like those little tiny um ipods the the i forget what they're called the little shuffle ones i guess they're called mm -hmm. um and um oh i forget the guy's name unfortunately um but uh yeah alive inside you can find it on youtube um documentary of this guy who just decided he was going to go into retirement communities and uh interact with people suffering from dementia and alzheimer's in this way where he is like, what kind of music do you like to listen to? And then he loads up one of these iPods with the music that they're into. They put the headphones on and all of a sudden, like you, you watch this transformation happen mm -hmm. instantly mm -hmm. for these people yeah, uh, because they're, they're reconnected this music, they're reconnecting with this music and in, in doing so they're reconnecting with themselves, their identity and all of a sudden, like they're having these memories that they would otherwise never even have. And uh, music is the catalyst. And mm -hmm. I actually discovered this movie right around the same time that I started playing in retirement communities. And I started playing in retirement communities specifically for what they call the memory care residents. And so that was my first experience playing for uh, retired peoples. Um, and uh, I guess that's not happening right now, eh? It's it's not. Um, I mean, I am playing. I'm still playing shows. I'm playing shows using Zoom. Unfortunately, I, I had a Christmas Eve show and a New Year's Eve show lined up at a retirement community community who just let me know that they've got another positive. So they're not going to mm. be doing they're not even doing that because that requires them to gather people together in the same room. So those are out, unfortunately. <laughs> But yeah, as much as I can this year, I've been, I've been performing. I've still been performing using Zoom. So on your Vox Vigana YouTube there, you're out in the streets somewhere, sort of like busking almost in, in the community. You've done a bit of that over the summer? Yeah, there were, how many times a day? Like maybe two or three times at the same retirement community now um, uh, that had the cancellations. Uh, where I did what I call the the serenade gigs. Most of the residents would like stay in the building and they they could come out onto their balconies of their of their rooms. Some people came down to watch me, but you know, there was the masks and the social distancing and all of that, you know, very safe, of course. Well, I know from personal experience how they how important that is for those folks. So you're a hero just even for doing that. Oh, thank you. So well, now I know you want to play some music for us, and that's very exciting. So tell us about, is it The Future is Vegan? Yeah, this was the song when I started putting Box Vegana together and thinking about the fact that I, you know, I wanted us to be singing on topic with veganism. I went looking for music that was vegan like I was like what it what is vegan music anyway and uh I ended up finding like some some really good stuff I didn't I didn't even know this but Prince was vegan rest in peace and he wrote this really wonderful song uh, about the animals and uh I also remembered back in must have been the early 90s PETA put out this really great compilation and it had uh, this song on it was called Tame Yourself and some other really good songs in there. And like Michael Stipe was on there and uh, uh, just a bunch of other really great musicians got together to, to do this compilation for PETA. Uh, you know, so I started thinking like, okay, I could probably, you know, create choral arrangements of some of these pieces, but um, ultimately it seemed to be 
a good idea to just come up with my own. So I wrote this song called The Future is Vegan for the group. Uh, and that's when we had our one and only meeting before the lockdown. We got together and we sang this as a group and it was, oh, so nice. It was so nice to hear like four different voices harmonizing in my space. This is uh, the, the piano solo version of um, The Future is Vegan.
when did you write your first song and how, how did it evolve from there? Obviously you lived in a family that was able to support you in, in your quest. And did you have music in the schools, you know, all of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I remember I probably the first song I ever wrote <laughs> somewhere. I've got a photocopy of it too. Uh, I called yakety yak. Uh, which, you know, there's already a song called Yakety Yak, <laughs> or it's called, uh, what is it called? Uh, Don't Talk Back or whatever, some doo-wop song from the 50s. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, my my version of Yakety Yak was even <laughs> less intelligible. Um, but uh, I didn't I didn't start writing, you know, music in any kind of... Uh, you know, pop structure until I purchased a guitar, actually. Um, that that was a big, uh, big shifting point for me. Um, that and discovering a, a book that I call the Beatle Bible, which is this like giant white textbook that's got uh, every, every uh, song ever recorded by the Beatles. And it's got every part for each one of those songs, it's like the score for every song recorded by the Beatles. Um, and, and through that book, I discovered something called tab, which is short for tablature, which is, uh, you know, what uh, a lot of guitarists use to figure out what to play, uh, instead of standard notation, it's just another way to notate music. Um, and, uh, through, you know, learning how to use tab, I learned how to play Blackbird on the guitar. And then it was all over for me. I was like, I became uh, an amateur guitar player, <laughs> a diehard amateur guitar player, but it was because of learning how to play the guitar and learning how to strum, you know, a handful of different chords uh, and then sitting down and like learning how to play, you know, Beatles songs and Beck songs and Radiohead songs and Stone Temple Pilots songs, you know, just any, any song that I liked, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to learn how to play that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've got the creative impulse and you spend that much time studying music and the way music is put together, eventually you start to, you know, put together your own songs. Um, so, you know, that that whole process, I bought that guitar. Um, oh, it might have must have been like right around the turn of the century there, uh, the turn of the millennia. Um, and uh uh, yeah, that's that's when that whole process began. Was that was that the grunge time in Seattle, or was that yeah? Were you so were you in some bands? And so so interesting. Uh, you know, I I I was I was definitely affected and influenced by the grunge era of Seattle. Um, in you know, I mean, I guess it was other places too, but uh, you know, Seattle takes most of the credit for that particular phenomenon uh but i didn't get here until that was long over um so when i when i showed up you know with my post grunge music <laughs> i remember even getting a comment i moved here in oh what was that it was must have been about 13 years ago so what is that i'm not good with simple math 2000 mid 2000s yeah. All right. Yeah, mid to mid 2000s. Um uh 
And uh, yeah, I remember getting a comment from somebody like, oh man, where were you like 10 years ago? This, <laughs> this music is good, but it's dated. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I managed to have a couple of different bands that I was in and out of here in Seattle uh, and back in Chicago before I moved here. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, you know, I, you know, it, it took, it took me a while actually, like I, I resisted a lot of, a lot of uh, what I was hearing coming out of Seattle um, up until like about 1994, like right before Kurt Cobain died, um, uh, I had been resisting. And then I was like, oh, wait, I kind of, I kind of feel this. I kind of understand that I, I get the angst here. And, you know, I, a band that I was in in Chicago, like uh, I would I would put on in utero on the way to rehearsals and just scream along uh, for my warm up <laughs> on the way to those rehearsals. So um, so yeah, influenced by grunge for sure. Uh, but I I missed I missed that train. Um, it was before my time. While we're on the subject of Seattle, you had mentioned in one of our gatherings online about going downtown or going to Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, between COVID and the the Black Lives Matter movement and the the response, I would say, to both of those things, uh, we've had a very different response here in Canada that has supported people I would say much more through through the through the thing. It's not perfect, um, and we you know we have a lot of the same problems. But it's it was really it was scary there for a while watching what was going on in in the states. And so you you know everybody's staying home a lot, but you ventured off to Capitol Hill and what happened there? Yeah. So um, so yeah, you know yeah, pretty much anybody watching the news. Uh, knew that uh, among other places in the states, um, Seattle was uh, Seattle was a war zone. I mean, it it literally was just this. Uh, there was a lot a lot of um, a lot of tear gas and a lot of mace and a lot of flash bombs and uh, and you know we we watched all of that happen on on TV. Those of us that were outside of the action. And, you know, I had friends that were there when, uh, you know, the, that guy who was suspected of being a member of the Proud Boys showed up and shot somebody at one of the protests. Like, I have friends that watched that happen. Wow. Um, I wasn't there for it. I was, um, yeah, I was, I was too scared to go to those protests. Um, I went, I went to one protest uh, it was like the very first protest that happened in Seattle, and it was um, it was very peaceful. Actually, there was uh, it was just a, mostly everybody was in their cars. Um, all, for the most part, everybody was in their cars, and it was just this sort of like parade that happened down Lake City Way. Um, but but yeah, after that, that's uh, you know the the very next protest that happened was downtown, and that's when like you know, a couple of cars got set on fire and windows were smashed and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and then, you know, most of the action then kind of migrated to Capitol Hill, not surprisingly. Um, Capitol Hill has always been sort of a, a hotbed for uh, all kinds of things. You know, Occupy Seattle was in uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, 
Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the protesting was happening and that's, and that's right where, um, you know, at some point the, uh, there was a Seattle, the precinct there decided to literally just leave. Like they got up and left. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't even remember what they called it now, but basically like Capitol Hill became kind of like, uh, Oh yeah, they called it the autonomous zone, um, and um, right, Capitol Hill autonomous zone, and it was there were literally, I mean, like there there was no police presence at all, um, and you know that that was fascinating to me as well. I was like, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, you know, I was I was curious to go down there for that too, but again, kind of scared because it was just like. I, anything can happen in that kind of scenario, you know, and I have my suspicions that uh, a lot of the crime that took place there was actually, um, you know, manufactured uh, to discredit and uh, anyway, the kind of things that, you know, we'll never probably ever be able to completely know for sure. But um but I did make it down there, <clears throat> uh, what was that, like a couple weeks ago, I guess, uh, just to visit a, a friend of mine who lives on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I mean, like he, he was in his apartment listening to windows getting smashed, uh, you know, a few months ago when, when all that was going down. Um, uh, he lives right by, what was it, like a like a BMW or like a Ferrari dealership that's there. And like, they took out those windows. Um, and, and so he got to listen to that. And um, anyway, I, yeah, I went down to visit him and he, we decided to meet in a park, uh, you know, and wear our masks and do the whole social distancing thing. And um, uh, that was, it was interesting to return to Capitol Hill. Uh, that park in particular, you know, I, I remember watching video footage of like, you know, one of our, one of our major newscasters here like took a flash bomb in the face uh, in that park, you know, and it was like, it was like literally like you were watching war footage. It was ridiculous. Um, and now uh, that park is uh it's there's a there's like a huge like tent community there like there's it's just yeah there's um homelessness and uh drug usage and um and graffiti like completely covering you know this this uh this fountain that i used to visit you know 10 years ago that was really pretty and now it's just a uh, lots of angry graffiti. Um, I, I took a couple of pictures. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of the businesses are, you know, even, even outside of that area, there's like, everything's like boarded up, mm. you know? Um, mm. and, uh, and, you know, as soon as I got there too, I was like, oh man, I really have to go to the bathroom. And my friend Greg was like, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, like none of the businesses are letting anybody in. 
Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So like, so like literally everywhere is a toilet at this point, you know, to paraphrase Abby Hoffman. Um, uh, yeah, as if, as if the, we didn't have enough uh, homeless people before COVID and, and all of this, uh, you know, now, and imagine what it's like trying to live in that situation, right? <laughs> Yeah. And there's no services. And Seattle is one of the more kind of progressive cities in the U.S., I think. Yeah. And yet our homelessness in Seattle is uh, extensive. It's extensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that was surreal for me. You know, I I mean, to to have moved here 13 years ago um, when Seattle was kind of a small town uh, and then to get to a place now, you know, uh, post, you know, the Microsoft boom and the Amazon boom and uh, the, the whole tech boom that's happened in Seattle and how much everything has changed. Um, you know, at some point we were the, we had the second most number of like cranes, uh, mm. like uh, construction cranes in the world. And the only, the only city that was beating us was Dubai. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the landscape of Seattle itself is so different than when I moved here. Um, mm. And there's way more people and way more cars and way more homelessness. And, um, you know, the, the things that I, m most of what I loved about Seattle is gone. It's mm. just gone. You know, I, I came from Chicago and Seattle looks a lot more like what I remember Chicago looking like now than it did when I first got here. Well, and how yeah. are you surviving with COVID? You've got enough work. Do you, so the work that you get, you used to work for School of Rocks. You were a music teacher. Are, yeah. are, you know, are you being a music teacher or a composer or how are you surviving? So uh, I would say most of my money comes from teaching actually. I, and I've been doing, obviously all of my lessons have been online. And how's that, is that, that's doable? It is, you know, it's, um, there are, there are certain concessions that you have to make in the format. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't really accompany anybody anymore because there's mm -hmm. that time delay that happens there. Um, so we have to work around that. Uh, a couple of my students have, uh, not the best, uh, internet, you know, um, especially because everybody's at home so everybody's using the internet you know like their parents are in meetings and uh uh so that that can be kind of tricky um but uh but you know they're it it's it's doable there i i i probably couldn't cite anything now specifically but there are certain um certain advantages that i that i discovered in in teaching lessons online that I didn't expect to discover. Um, like what? So, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, like you don't have to go anywhere. Well, you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, and even, even with that time delay factor, right? You know, if I, if I'm, if I'm like playing a scale that I want my student to sing or something right that, you know, like they're going to hear that note that I play like a second after I play it. Uh, which means they're still hearing it and using it as a reference and singing along in real time for them. Um, but, uh, but I'm hearing them singing 
delayed, right? So by the time it gets back to me, uh, I'm only hearing their voice, right? So in a way, like it makes it easier for me to know if they're accurate or not because they're not, you know, makes any sense. Right, yeah, for sure, yeah, um, cool. So that, you know, like interesting, you know, we're doing our best, we're all doing our best to look for the silver linings of this crazy situation. Yeah, go all kind of have to, right? I mean, you have to. We are creatures of survival. Survival yeah. is what we do. So, all of us, all species, they just, we all want to survive, right? We all want to live and breathe and survive. And yes, we, we do, do, we all do that the best we can. And, and uh, vegans uh, do that uh, for ourselves. And then we, reach out and try to make a difference for the lives of the animals too so yeah. the music that you're bringing is wonderful and you've written an international vegan anthem and you're looking mm -hmm. the last i couldn't believe it when i saw that you had scored all the different you know the alto and the soprano and the different i mean you've written an orchestra piece basically i i think a, a composition there and and so how's that project coming along Uh, it's unfortunately it's not um you know i i i put it you know i posted it on the vox vegana page and i'm also uh you know one of the other wonderful communities that i discovered this year is a, a, a facebook community called vegan music makers um and this is you know uh, some of the collaborations that i've done this year have been uh with people that i've met through that site um there's this amazing guitar player who lives in Belgium. Uh, we're actually getting ready to do a, yet another collaboration. We did a piece together called Commonality. Um, I saw that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the genres, you just, you mix up genres too. Yeah. It's yeah. true that, uh, you know, I, I like all different kinds of music. Um, you know, the, the commonality is, is definitely harder than I usually listen to these days. It's more akin to like, uh, you know, the errand driving to rehearsal <laughs> back in Chicago. Kind Rock of, and uh, roll. Yeah. And with but, images, uh, who, so who did the video uh, collaboration for that? Yeah, that was Dan Duomo as well. Um, you know, the guitar player the, who lives in Belgium, he put that video together as well. And there, there are actually two versions of it because I was like, Maybe we should have one, you know, for people that don't necessarily need to see that stuff, you know, like, so like the vegans can listen to it too. <laughs> the, the truth of the situation is like, and I've had this discussion with other people on the, the vegan music makers page as well, that like, you know, it's, it's great that we're creating this music and we're sharing it with other vegans and, and, you know, we're all helping each other out and supporting each other in that way. But ultimately 
the reason that I'm making vegan music is for non-vegans to listen to, to get the message to the people that need to hear it. That's my goal. My goal is to make, you know, music that is accessible, has appropriate production values for uh, a larger market that extends beyond the boundaries of just vegans and vegan music makers. But yeah, I mean, as far as uh, the, the anthem, I'm not sure where to go next to promote it more. I, you know, I put the pitch up on the Vegan Music Maker page. I put it up on Vox Vigana. I think probably the next step is to just start contacting people individually and be like, hey, I really like what you're doing. Do you want to sing my song, please? <laughs> you, you'll be the first. Are you, are you looking for people to play different instruments or you're just looking for people to sing different parts? Vox Vigana started out uh, as like strictly a choral thing. The anthem is more of a choral piece. So for that particular project, yeah, mostly looking for singers. But, you know, if somebody came to me and was like, what if I, you know, put a bass line underneath that? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that, you know? Okay, cool. Um, but Vox Vigana, uh, you know, my, my slogan has sort of evolved into many, many different genres one very specific topic. I'm wondering if you could share, it's the holiday season and it's a different holiday for everybody this year. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you would talk about uh, maybe some of your favorite food, whether it's Christmassy type mm -hmm. seasonal food or, or other food, what are some of your favorite things to eat? You know, when it gets to be the holiday season, for me, that means tofurkey. That means the tofurkey feast. Um, and I, I've had... <laughs> <laughs> probably personally put away like at least five of them this year all on my own. But I, you know, I invited my brother over a couple of times and, you know, I'll do the whole thing. Tofurkey. And then I, I cook it with like Brussels sprouts and onions and uh, sweet potatoes. And then I'll make mashed potatoes on the side. And the tofurkey feast comes with this like really, really delicious gravy. And sometimes uh, depending upon which package you buy, it'll have like dessert in there. Mine came with this like chocolate cheesecake um, and it's all like totally vegan. I love tofurkey um, and, I, and I love, you know, the, basically the traditional uh, Thanksgiving feast with the cranberry sauce and, uh, you know, the pies and all of that stuff. Just make it vegan and I'll eat it. Interestingly, the vegan restaurants in Victoria are doing really well through COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah, I think people are catching on that this is the safest food source. <sighs> it just even in terms of COVID and there's a lot of people trying to get healthier and all the rest of it. So from what I understand, all our vegan, local vegan places are, are doing really well. Is that the same in Seattle, do you think? Or do you know? Sadly, no. You know, I, I've been, I've been to, you know, I've been to pick up food at my favorite vegan Thai restaurant a couple of times. But another, another one of my favorites is called No Bones Beach Club. And they're like this tiki themed vegan restaurant um, with delicious, delicious food and cocktails if you're into that. Um, but they had to close up. And uh, yeah, there've been, yeah, there've been a, there've been several actually. Uh, there's a great vegan grocery store called Vegan Haven. They donate all of their money to uh, Pig's Peace Sanctuary. Um, and they're like completely volunteer run. They haven't been open this whole time. Um, so yeah, we're struggling. Do you know, I, I mean, I have to say again, Canada's not perfect, but I know the government has 
an ongoing wage subsidy for small businesses who are unable to meet all of their expenses. So the government has is basically printing money in a big way. And I don't know, some people say that's just going to uh, bite us in the butt, but I don't really see how. I mean, to me, it makes sense. Like you put money in people's hands and they spend it, right? And that's that's what keeps the economy going. And you support small businesses and they're able to employ people and that puts money in their hands. And then it just stays, you know, the money keeps circulating. And uh, whereas what we're seeing happen in the US now and what I'm hearing about is that small businesses are going under and then the big corporate Walmarts and Amazons are basically taking over everything, it sounds like. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. We, we got to shop local when we can. I mean, you can still go online and buy from local. A lot of them have moved, uh, you know, to online businesses. And I think it's really up to us to, whether we're vegan or not, you know, support those local vegan and, you know, that have vegan offering businesses, I think. Yeah, I still, uh, I still advise caution in regard to food because we know that COVID uh, travels on animal packaging. So I don't know, personally, I'm not interested in getting vegan food from a non-vegan restaurant and um i like to cook anyways i'd rather just cook do you like to cook yeah i do like to cook yeah absolutely Um, and and usually usually i'm not cooking tofurkey you know if i'm being entirely honest like uh whenever i consume too much of that like plant-based meat products like i i I feel kind of gummed up inside well it's Um, it's gluten right doesn't really agree with me that that much uh so i you know i try to keep it uh lentils and and rice and beans and greens and you know all the good stuff all the stuff that your body's just like yes please you can make you know with the right spices you can make all that stuff so delicious so it is absolutely true well as we wrap then is there anything else that you want to mention before we go Ah, you know, um, I've just been, I've been thinking a lot lately about, uh, you know, the, the fact that I, I am a new vegan, um, uh, compared to a lot of the people that I know, even in the, uh, the Vistopia, especially in the Vistopia Anonymous group, you know, we've got members that have been doing it for decades, um, and, uh, you know, um, for me, you know, since, since this is kind of a new transition for me, like I'm, I'm still trying to find my footing. Um, I'm still trying to find like, you know, the best way for me to exist with Vistopia, um, the best way for me to, to bring the message to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, where I've landed lately is uh, just that uh, it's it's my belief that most people um, who are not yet vegan uh, just don't even really know what's going on. They don't know. They might have a suspicion, you know, like like my brother, you know, making that suggestion to me. Like he probably read that somewhere, but. Uh, I personally feel that until you've really seen the Holocaust that's happening behind closed doors, for the most part, um, you don't know. You don't really know. And 
I would just like to make a plea to everybody who has a desire to know the truth and, um, and create a better world for everybody to just bear witness, to see it for yourself. Because we have amazing, incredible, seemingly fearless activists who have risked their lives and certainly their livelihood to show us what's happening. And the very least we could do is see what they're showing us. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I, I would just, I would like to make that appeal to everybody who hasn't borne witness, to bear witness, to go watch Earthlings, to go watch Dominion, to know for yourself, to really know for yourself, not think you know, but really know. That's beautiful. That's great advice. Yeah. And it, it does it. It changes everything once you know. It's liberating. It's liberating because then we can absolutely refuse to participate in that anymore at all, ever, never, ever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. And you're going to play another song for us? Yeah. I'm going to play one more song <laughs> on a much lighter note. Uh, uh, I'm going to play a song called Young at Heart. Um, I unfortunately can't remember who authored this song, but it was made popular by Frank Sinatra. And uh, this is one of the ones that I play for my retirement community fans. And it goes like this.
Look at all you'll derive out of being alive. And here is the best part. You'll have a head start if you are among the very young at heart. My guest today was professional musician Aaron Cadam Samuels. You can find more Plant Powered Radio by visiting us on YouTube and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. Please be safe and considerate towards all species. Thanks so much for listening. Passion encircles the earth for all beings everywhere.